Alright, this morning is August 19th. It is 2007. Our message this morning is streams of water. Streams of water. The Psalms are written... I told you all to go to Psalm 1 before the message started, didn't I? The Psalms are written over a period of about a thousand years. But who gets credit for most of them? David. King David gets credit for almost every psalm in the Bible. I've quoted for years certain psalms. Like, uh, have you ever said, many things have I seen, but I've... No, no, not that one. There's another one that says, uh, the average age of a man is about 70 years. I said, you know, well, David said during his lifetime, because it's a psalm, that the average age of a man was about 70 years. The problem is, is Moses wrote it. And Moses wrote that in somewhere between 1400 and 1600 B.C., and David didn't live until 1,000. Other times we quote psalms and we immediately give them to David, and it's kind of like carbon in chemistry. It's the right answer most of the time. But how is it that David gets credit for all of these psalms if they're written over a thousand-year period? Psalms are songs. Psalms are the lyrics of Hebrew worship. And in them you will find beautiful, beautiful things. David gets credit because he created an environment. Hold your finger in Psalm 1. We will be there all morning. But go to Chronicles. Go to Chronicles 9. He created an environment where praise and worship became the order of the day in Israel. So nearly every song or psalm in Hebrew, gets credited to him. Look at uh, Chronicles 9, verse 33, while keeping your finger in Psalm 1. Those who were musicians, heads of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. What work do musicians do? They play music. These people have lodging in the temple and were exempt from other duties because their job was to worship God. I'm glad Piro's not in here. He would quit immediately. Build a little room in the church and that would be his job. David created an environment where praise and worship could flourish. Flip over a few chapters. I know David was not the builder of the temple. But you'll see, starting in uh, Chronicles 15, that David paved the way for this to occur. 15, verse 16. David told the leaders of the Levites. Who told the leaders of the Levites? David did. To appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. Then they go through all of the appointments. There was a time period, you can go back to Psalm 1, in history where the king of Israel, in love with God, heart after on God, sponsored a time of joyful worship. It was also the time of the most bloody warfare in Israel's history. What an odd combination. Joyful worship and bloody warfare. And this is the very time period that the apostles in the book of Acts say, we're rebuilding. A time of joyful worship, expressing our hearts towards God, and a time of bloody warfare. Now, Paul makes it very clear our battles are not against the flesh and blood. They're against spiritual powers in dark realms. This is how a woman with Bell's palsy, 
who is fighting with a spiritual entity called discouragement can smile and joyfully worship and look right into the face of the enemy and laugh at him. We are in a time of joyful worship and fierce warfare. David created an environment in Israel where the Psalms could be written, where it was encouraged. He said, but what about the ones that predated him? Well, David did such a good job, we just credit him with those two. About a thousand years it took to write these. The Psalms are directly quoted in the New Testament more than 35 times. Now, that doesn't begin to include all of the times, like Luke says, after they ate the what we call the Last Supper, the Communion Supper, they sang a hymn. Well, what hymn did they sing? They sang it, sang it out of their hymn book, a psalm. This doesn't even include those times. These are direct phrases pulled right out of the Psalms. Jesus quoted five or six of them on the cross. There are five divisions. Do you see in Psalm 1, what is right above the word Psalm 1? Book 1. Did you know that there were books in the Psalms? We were told that Psalms was a book. The Hebrews divided the Psalms into five separate books, all called the Psalms. Their hymnal is divided into five categories. Five. Five. What is important to Jews about five? Well, their Torah has five books. Most people believe that the reason, because this happened during Mishnaic times, they believe that the reason the Psalms were divided by Jewish sages into five specific books was to emphasize that they were equivalent to the five books of Moses or the law. See, the Torah in Hebrew life forms something. It forms a foundation for living. The way in which you as a believer walk before God. And they wanted to emphasize that the Psalms were just like the Torah. The songs that we sing, the expressions of our heart towards God were foundational to life. This emphasis can be seen that in every book of the Psalms, it ends with a doxology. There are five books in Psalms, and at the end of each book, you'll find that the last Psalm has a doxology, like, Blessed be the God of Israel who delivers us from everlasting to everlasting. They're summaries or closing prayers for something that you learned about God. Our love of the Psalms comes from something. It enriches our lives because when we study them, we find human frailties. We find that the Psalms emphasize the heart's cry of men. David prays one time, Lord, would you break the teeth out of the mouths of the wicked? Does that sound like Bible to you? It certainly doesn't sound like modern Christianity. God loves everyone. David had a heart after God, and he said, Lord, would you crush their hairy crowns? Would you bring them down? In fact, I'd like our army to bathe in their blood. Could you do that, Lord? He said, well, how do you reconcile those things? What we find in the Psalms is a bridge, a kind of gap between ancient times and modern times that lets us know how they related to God after reading His Word in the same way we do. You find something that when a man is broken and crushed in his sin, you hear his heart's cry. 
don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And something down in you is moved by that because you feel His human weakness and you identify with it as a human who is weak. And so we're fed by the Psalms. Our lives are enriched by them. There was an important author who wrote, the Psalms bridge the gap between then and now, the ancient world and the present, better than any other book of the Bible. A guy named Natan Sharansky. Today he's a popular Jewish freethinker, uh, political activist and author. One of those guys that seems to be, like if he were in the United States, he would be asked on Fox News to commentate on things. He's just a bright guy and well-recognized for it. He spent eight years in a Soviet labor camp, all because he wanted to make Aliyah. The Soviet labor camps are almost always in the most barren, desolate regions. They have a name for their workforce, at least during the Soviet Union they did. They called it the workforce of paradise. Right. He wanted to leave the workforce of the paradise because he was a son of Zion. He knew that the Bible spoke of a day when the Jewish people would return to Zion, the mountain of God's praise. Zion is synonymous with Jerusalem. So they put him in prison for it. He wrote a book called Fear No Evil. Where do those words come from? Fear No Evil, 23rd Psalm. The reason he titled it that is because every day when he faced death daily... What sustained him was the 23rd Psalm, fearing no evil. You'll hear from nearly every prisoner of war who ever grew up with a Christian or Jewish heritage that those words came back to them at some point. Turn with me to Psalm 33. Keep your finger in Psalm 1. I'm teaching you a little bit about the Psalms before we look at Psalm 1. In Psalm 33, verse 18, we find verses that Natan Sharansky, not a believer in Yeshua, said sustained his very life. Psalm 33, verse 18. But the eyes of Yahweh are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. If you were in a Soviet labor camp, would you want to know from the writer of a psalm who had experienced God keeping him alive in famine, delivering him from death, would you want to know if you were in a Soviet labor camp that those words applied to you? Natan Sharansky said that they sustained his very soul. When he got off of a plane in Israel, he went somewhere. He drove from Tel Aviv, where the airport is, straight into old Jerusalem. And he walked up to the last remaining wall of Solomon's temple, the western wall. And he knelt before the western wall, put his hands on the wall, and thanked God. But something was in his hands. It was the book of Psalms. Because it had sustained him. The Psalms are an important book. They're important enough that even our Gideon friends, who we've talked about a little bit recently, although they hand out New Testaments, what do they have in them? Psalms. The Psalms are a way for us to relate to all believers throughout time. When you hear a song from the 60s, 
and it mentions things that were going on in the 60s, and it uses expressions from the 60s, but essentially still expresses something that we feel today, such as love or political anger or whatever it might be. You're identifying with a group of people there. The Psalms then are a window into how ancient believers worshipped God, thought about Him, and related to Him. There's a psalm, though, that's unique among the others. Some call it the orphan psalm. Why would it be called an orphan? What is an orphan? You don't know who their daddy is. Most psalms are credited to David. There's a few that are not credited to anyone. Sometimes you'll see a psalm of Asaph, a psalm of David, uh, a masculine of blah, 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 right? The very first psalm in the book doesn't say that. When you read there, it simply says, Book 1, Psalm 1. No author. This psalm is unique. It contains no real deep probing of the soul. No heart-wrenching personal expression. So should we throw it out of the psalms then? I found out something in reading it today. It's a little bit like a preamble. It's a little bit like a summary document prior to reading all of the rest about human experience. A prologue, maybe. When we read the first psalm today, it will encompass everything that the rest of the psalms are trying to teach you. It's the thesis, if you will. It's not an orphan psalm. It's the foundation of the psalms. What is the first word of Psalm 1? Blessed. That's rich in and of itself, isn't it? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. I don't want to reduce any teaching that we have to linguistics. If your argument solely revolves around linguistics, you probably don't have a very good argument. But let me submit to you this idea. My son Gabriel is not in here, but at six years old, he already knows how to say, Bless you, O Lord. Those words are Baruch Atah. Adonai in Hebrew. So if you want to say blessed, what do you say? Baruch. That's not this word. Wouldn't you think it would be this word? Blessed is the man. Wouldn't you think that the Hebrew word Baruch would be there? I was very surprised to find out that it's not Baruch. It's a Hebrew word and I'll spell it for you. A-S-H-R-E-I. Ashria. And it doesn't just mean blessed. In fact, it's Strong's number 835, and it means something altogether different. Let me read you another passage that was translated with this same word in it. It's in Kings 10. You can turn there or not. Probably ought not to. I rarely lie when I preach, and I promise this time to tell you the truth. Kings 10, what I'm going to read you is verse 8. In Kings 10, verse 8, it says... How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. This is when the king, the queen of Sheba has visited Solomon. She's impressed with his wisdom and she says, How happy your men must be. That word is Ashria. It's not Baruch, it's not blessed, it's Ashria. So why on earth would we then take a word that is happy and make it blessed? Isn't there a relationship between the two? How often would you look at somebody with a giant frown on their face? A scowl that could be picked out from the space shuttle and say, that person is blessed. 
Y'all still in Psalm 1? Most of our translators have chosen to translate this blessed because they're following the tradition. The first translators in the English language chose to call it blessed, and it does mean blessed. But blessed almost implies a promise, almost not wishful thinking, but you're waiting for something to happen. The blesser, the greater to bless the lesser. Waiting for something from the outside in. And that's not what this says. In Hebrew, this says, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So why make such a federal case out of this, Eric? I want you to understand something. I'm hoping that it will get down in you. It doesn't say a man will be happy when he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It says, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. When I say you are blessed, what kind of word would that be in English? Or rather, let me say it this way. If I say blessed is the man, what are we describing? We're talking about some action. This is not a verb in Hebrew. It's a noun. Well, what difference does all that make? Right here. We're describing the state of being for anyone who walks the way God tells them to be. Not they will be happy. Not they might be happy in the future. Not their promised happiness. Walking with God is being in the state of happiness. The first thing that the book of Psalms wants you to know is that happiness is synonymous with walking with God. That's encouraging and convicting to me all at the same time. How about you? This is a noun and not a verb. You are happy when you are not walking in the counsel of the wicked. So what does it mean when you are sad, depressed, frowning? You are walking in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the, I, I, This is six verses, so I'm going to read it to you and then we'll go back and talk about it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand. That means will not endure in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly or church of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perishes. The overwhelming theme that you are being introduced to in the very first verses is that the man who attends to the Torah, who studies it, who applies it, will be happy despite darkness all around him. Around this person who is blessed, who is happy, there is a wicked counsel, but he's not walking according to it. There are sinners, but he's not participating with them. There are mockers, but he's not sitting with them. He's chosen instead to do something, to dwell in the law of the Lord. Galatians 4.15 says something. The Apostle Paul has been away from the Galatian church for some time. 
He's writing to them because he's heard reports about them. The reports don't say the Galatian church has abandoned their doctrine. Although Galatians contains many doctrinal corrections. It doesn't say the Galatian church has given up their points of doctrine. It doesn't say anything about their belief system. Galatians 4.15 is one glaring red stop sign in Paul's mind. And he says, What has happened to all of your joy? Who has bewitched you? Because Paul understood that the foundation of the Christian walk is that you are happy when you are walking with God. Not you will be happy, not you're becoming happy. It is a state of being. The first words here are happiness or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but instead delights in the Lord. This ought to allow us to examine our behaviors with how we spend our time and our thoughts. You cannot be walking in the counsel of the Lord and be sad all of the time. I saw a popular movie in the mid-90s that described Christians as the miserable ones. People were in prison, but they were worried about the Christians who were outside of prison that came to do jail ministry because they seemed so unhappy. According to Psalms, in my opinion, they're disqualified from being Christians. There's something that is supposed to be the overriding, overwhelming mark of our life. It's a noun that I'm going to use like an adjective. You are supposed to be happy. Turn with me to Joshua. Keep your finger in Psalms. You're going to be in Joshua 1. Y'all aren't happy? (laughs) Turn with me to Joshua 1. Come on, brother. Would you say that Joshua was given a monumental task? You think that's fair to say? I'm not stretching the truth or exaggerating there, am I? Hmm? No. Joshua given a monumental task. Wouldn't you like lots of instruction if you're going to if you had to reassemble my truck outside? You want a paragraph of instructions or do you want a book of instructions? So Joshua is going to go take the land of Canaan and conquest. He's going to lead millions of people in the pathways of righteousness. He ought to get pretty thorough instructions, huh? Let's read some of his instructions. Joshua 1, starting in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. We're repeating a theme there, huh? Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Where was the key to Joshua's success? In abiding in the Word. That's the key to Joshua's success. He's told simply to abide in God's Word. Have you ever met people that weren't happy because they didn't feel successful? Well, how do you get success? You abide in God's Word. It will define for you what success is for you. Did you know that success was measured differently among different people? Have you ever seen a painting from the Middle Ages 
and the people are somewhat robust? That's because at that time, this was an iconic image of success. Today, we have an entirely different iconic image of what success is. People define success differently, but the Word is the standard for our lives, and it defines success for each individual by their obedience to the Word of God. Success brings happiness, a success that you find in the Word. Let's go back to Psalm 1. Blessed or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's an enormous difference between the wicked and the righteous. And I could spend hours talking to you about biblical definitions for each, but I think it's probably more fitting that I give you an example. In the light of blessed is the man or happy is the man who abides in God's Word, let's think about David. David, all of the Psalms credited to him. What is the most famous story about one of David's successes? I mean, the most famous every kid ever... David and Goliath. What did David do in that situation that others didn't? Well, he cut off a giant's head, he threw rocks at him, he did all those things. That's not where it started. It started with an adherence to God's Word. He believed that Goliath was not facing him, but facing God, because Israel had been proclaimed as God's people, princes with God. So in a situation where every other human being around him, his own brother called him a liar and said he had a wicked heart, the king looked at him and said, you are not able to go. But David had the courage to abide in the Word of God, despite everyone's advice, despite every circumstance around him, he said, this Philistine is not opposing me, but the armies of the living God. David was probably not a depressed human being. In fact, when others were depressed, they brought David in. And what did he do? He played a harp and worshipped in what happened to them. They came out of their depression, their destructive attitudes. David had the courage to apply the Word of God. So when we talk about walking in the way of the righteous versus the wicked, let's be clear. We're talking about those that have the courage to adhere to the Word of God versus something else. Turn with me to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 pretty clearly defines what wickedness is. Psalm 36, verse 1. By the way, this is a uh, song of David. Yeah. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before His eyes. For in His own eyes He flatters Himself. What does a wicked person do? They refuse to fear God, which allows them to ignore God's Word. Instead, they look through their own eyes. Turn with me to Jude 10. I want you to hear it this way. You can go to the book of Revelation and hang a left if you want to find Jude quickly. Jude 10. 
Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct. What's instinct? Instinct is an innate knowledge. It's an action that you have that is just kind of programmed in the flesh somewhere. You don't have to teach a lion to hunt caribou, do you? It sees caribou and it wants to eat them. Right? They're born with a desire to eat caribou. Maybe caribou's a bit. Gazelles. Right? They didn't have to go to college, learn a career, decide what they wanted to pursue. It's an instinct. Look at verse 19. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. The Spirit dwells with and in and through the Word. There is in us an instinct that is contrary to the Word. What does your instinct tell you to do if you are slapped on the left cheek? What does the Word tell you to do? These are absolutely opposed to each other. And in every situation... That's a beautiful sneeze. Very well done, very feminine, very quiet. You did good. And I don't want you to feel as if you're being singled out here. Ashley for sneezing. (laughs) There are mere natural instincts when you face trouble. We call it the fight or flight syndrome, don't we? This is when your autonomic system kicks in. You start sweating and you don't know why. Your heart begins to race. There are mere natural instincts that when we obey them, we become more like animals than angels. There is a way that is wicked, and the best way I know to describe it is the wicked are led by their passions, what they felt like doing in the moment. They're led by what strongest emotion grabbed them at any minute. But the man of God refuses such things. He will not walk in that counsel. Instead, he abides in the Word of God. Flip with me to John 8. Tell me when you're in John 8. Put your finger on John 8, 31. Alright? I said put your finger on it. Didn't say read it. Put your finger on it. Blessed or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. Refusing natural instincts, meditating, dwelling on God's Word day and night. Here's how Rabbi Yeshua said it in John 8.31. If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Your natural instincts will always pull you away from the Word. It's why I've been trying to teach you fear is the enemy of faith. When we face obstacles, the Word says an obstacle is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Your natural instincts tell you you will be crushed, you cannot succeed, give up now. You feel an inkling in your spirit to pray for someone. Right? Especially if it's an obvious physical infirmity. We don't mind praying for people in other states boldly. We don't mind praying for people with things that cannot be seen boldly. But when somebody's wheeled in in a wheelchair 
and you feel the stirring of faith to pray for the person in the wheelchair, what is your very first instinct? What happens if they don't get up, right? Happy is the man who does not walk according to that counsel. See, the Bible is describing in the very beginning of the book of Psalms two paths that are diametrically opposed to each other. One leads to destruction and it seems very right to you. The other is contrary to your every natural instinct. It doesn't promise happiness. It is happiness. It is happiness. When we're talking about walking in counsel, to Hebrews, they don't talk about believing in God. They talk about walking with God. It's action-oriented versus creed-oriented. In fact, their legal system is not something that they believe in. It's something that they walk or carry out, and it's called halakha. What they're saying is, happy is the man who does not halakha according to the counsel of the wicked. Your walk, your life's direction is not determined by the counsel of the wicked. Where you dwell is not with those who mock God's counsel because their desires are for something else. But instead, we have a totally different path. But His delight, what is delight? Happiness is in the law of the Lord. If you are not happy, immerse yourself in the Word. I want to tell you something. I have watched spouses who hated each other fall in love with the Lord and suddenly the most beautiful thing happens. They fall in love with each other again. I have seen people who had experienced such harm and scars and hatred in their relationships that they thought that they could never repair them again. But dwelling in the Word created in them a happiness that overwhelmed it all. I've experienced that in my life on many, many levels. Happiness, blessing, is walking with God. It's meditating on Him. Turns me to Deuteronomy 4. We need to talk about this principle of absorbing the Word. Meditating. Are you with me? Does meditating almost carry a negative connotation? Does it feel new agey or at the very least oriental? Think some Zen master? You in Deuteronomy? Yes. You want to know where else to go? Fourth chapter. In Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 5. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. Moses speaking to his people so that you may follow them or walk in them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this nation is wise and an understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them 
the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? God set before His people a word that if we will walk in, is happiness for us. And it displays wisdom to everyone everywhere that we go. You know why somebody thinks someone else is wise? When they watch the results of how you handled the situation. Right? When you most often hear the words wise are when you fail in a situation that someone else handled rightly. Say, wow, that guy's got real wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And what God is saying is, if you will dwell in My Word, everyone will see your wisdom. Because their instincts are going to tell them to do things that the Word will tell you not to do, and vice versa. And it will show you to be wise. Jeremiah contains a pretty important passage along those lines, though, so I encourage you to turn there. Or you can listen to me and I'll be back in Psalm 1 in a minute. In Jeremiah, the 8th chapter, the very men who received this admonishment get this statement as well. Jeremiah 8, 6. This is God speaking. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues his own course. That's mere natural instincts. Like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons. And the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you say we are wise? For we have the law of the Lord. When actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. The wise will put, be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom have they? Wisdom is applying the word of the Lord, not knowing the word of the Lord. Back to Joshua's uh, charge here. You keep your finger in Psalms. Let me read this to you one more time because it might have escaped you since I didn't read it. Back in Joshua 1, he wasn't just told to hear the Word of the Lord. Listen to what he was told. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. What is that? Is that passive? Does that say hear the Word of the Lord? Sometimes in Christianity, we have developed into a group of people who simply accept knowledge. We accept it, and through intellectual assent, we acknowledge that it is true. But when it comes to actually experiencing it and applying it, showing God's wisdom in our actions, we fall woefully short. When God told Joshua through Moses, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, I imagine he took it seriously. To not depart from your mouth, what do you think that means? Speak it constantly. In an eight-hour day, how much of the Word are you speaking how does faith come? By hearing. How much other garbage do you hear in a day? Do you hear the counsel of the wicked all around you telling you, well, I would have smacked that guy back. In your situation, I'd be talking to a recruiter. 
in your situation, you might as well give up. It's foreclosure. We hear everything in the world, but you know what we need to hear? You need to hear a good sermon. Wrong. That's passive. You need to speak the Word of God. I taught you on Wednesday night about speaking life into dry bones so that you would see yourself as anointed men and women of God speaking to a situation and causing change. I told you that it would change the situation, but more importantly, it would change you. When Joshua is facing the largest test of his life that would require the most trust, God says, do not let my laws depart from your mouth. The Jews have taken this so literally that if you are in Israel and you get on a bus, any public transportation system, they look like they are praying in tongues. And they're not praying. They're reciting the law to themselves because they need it to get through every day. Meditation. We tend to think of meditation as folded knees, hands up, and some swami. Some weird dude in a girl's garment... Silent. Biblical meditation is not. It's more like the roar of a lion. It is something powerful in you that you are thinking about that is bubbling out of you all of the time a little bit like a guttural growl. It's in every situation that you're in both day and night, the Word rising in you to meet the challenges of life. Happiness is that. Happiness is in every situation feeling equipped not in a competence that comes from yourself, but a competence that is found in the Word that richly dwells in you. Did you ladies hear that word the other night? Richly it dwells in you. What's the difference between a rich man and a poor man? A poor man has very little. A rich man has a lot. And the Bible tells you to richly dwell in the Word. What does that mean? Lots of Word. I think it's wonderful that all of our prisoners of war that you hear testimonies about were sustained by Psalm 23. I think that is awesome and I'm glad they had it. There's another 150 or so Psalms though. We can sustain any situation if we will learn to meditate on the Word. What do you do when you hear a lion grumble and growl? You back up. Don't you? Your problems will do the same thing. They will be fleeing from you because you are resisting all temptation because the Word is like a diesel engine in you revving. The Bible tells us to meditate. I want you to understand meditation day and night is also found in Deuteronomy 8 when parents are told told to tell their children... Talk about the Word when you lie down, when you wake up, day, night. When you walk along the road, when you go in and out of your houses, talk about the Word. I love talk radio. I listen to it all of the time, but I would much rather be talking with you about the Word. We need to have a relationship with each other that causes us to meditate on the Word. Redefine meditate. We are not talking about, hmm... We are talking about speaking the Word day and night so that it can change you and your situation. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Turn with me back to Psalm 1. You may already be there. If you are, you're ahead of the game. We got so excited in worship. 
which is a good thing. That we started our word a little late. And I will try not to keep you very late. But I want you to have fuel in your engines. I want you to have that which is the only source of happiness in your life. Happy is the man who does not walk, does not halakha. His beliefs do not cause him to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way. The way in the Bible is what you do based on what you believe. Jewish believers in Yeshua were called followers of the way. That's because they were walking like Jesus walked. So they were called followers of the way. The prophet spoke of a highway, a way of righteousness being raised up that wicked fools would not travel about on. There is a way, beliefs that produce actions in you that is the right way. But his delight is in the law, instruction of the the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like... What does it mean to be like something? In, in English, what do we call this in literature? We've got similes and metaphors going on here. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. What is the word then? It is like streams of water. How long will the tree live if its strongest influence is not streams of water? It won't live very long. And if it does exist, you know what it will not do? Bear any fruit. God wants something from you. He wants your life to produce the fruit of His kingdom. And there is only one way to get it. Meditating on His Word day and night. Refusing all of the other influences in your life. This is the state of being happy. Redefine that. Happy is not when you have all of the possessions that Donald Trump has. Happiness is not dependent on the home you live in, the job you go to, or the way that some man looks at you. Happiness is dwelling in God's Word, abiding in it. That is happiness because it will show your actions to be wise. It means you'll have the outcome God wanted in every situation. That is happiness. Examine your life for a moment. The time periods of enormous grief in most cases revolve around wondering whether or not you did what God wanted you to do or knowing that you absolutely didn't. Happiness is letting all of your actions flow from the Word of God. In fact, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever He does prospers. God wants you to be planted deep in Him. I'm going to read you something out of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17, we hear an explanation of this bearing fruit in trees. It's Jeremiah 17, 7. There's a reason I'm reading this, and eventually I want you to be able to take the same scarlet cord that I give you and weave it all the way through the Old and New Testament. Jeremiah 17 starting in verse 7. But blessed, happy, is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. It's your confidence 
in your savings account? Is your confidence in your boss's approval? Is your confidence in your physical strength? See, when I look out at our church and I see the areas we're being tested in, I see that what God is doing is building our confidence. He's allowing the ravens to stop bringing food and the brooks to dry up so that we will learn that our confidence is in the Lord. This is not because you've done something wrong. This is because blessed is the man who does these things. He's teaching us how to be happy in every situation. He's teaching us how to be strong in every situation. Eighth verse. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. The stream does not come to you. You must stretch out for the stream. You have to do what it takes to get beyond your natural instincts and dwell in the Spirit. You have to do that. And it is hard work. It might cause you to cast down 99 thoughts that you have out of every hundred. In counseling situations, the words that I hear the most is, but I thought. You won't do well. If we're going to have a meeting, you need to know ahead of time that will not work. I will respond every way in the same, every way the same time. What does the Word say? We don't do well when we dwell in our thoughts rather than the Word. The difference between Saul and David is Saul is said to have his thoughts compel him to do what was wrong. David threw out his thoughts and clung to the Word. That's the difference between the two. It does not fear when heat comes. If you're dwelling in the Word, you cannot be dwelling in fear. If you have more than one phobia in your life, you need to dwell in the Word some more. If you have a single phobia in your life, you need to make sure that you are not living in disobedience to God's Word. Phobia is an unhealthy fear. I'm not talking about being wise enough to move out from under a building that falls. I'm talking about irrational fears. Its leaves are always green. What if they're tired? What if they had a hard day? When you dwell in the Word, He will renew your strength. You will labor with His energy which works powerfully in you. It will be meditating in you. It will be coming out constantly so that you are always strong for every occasion. It has no worries in the year of drought. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Your own feelings, but I felt like this, are deceitful. The Word of God is the only thing that you can trust. Isn't it interesting that in this very chapter, God promises that those who turn away from Him who forsake the spring of living water, verse 13, names will be written in the dust of Israel. Anyone who forsakes the Lord, who turns away from what His Word is teaching, names will be written in the dust of Israel. Jesus stood up in John 7.37 and said, If any man thirsts, let him come and drink of Me, the spring of living water. The leaders in Israel did not run to follow His example, to follow His teaching, to drink of Him. 
And in John 8, we find a setting where they want to stone a woman and he wrote their names in the dust. The psalms that they sang, the words that they carried out formed the way they thought about God and it determined everything that they did because it was on their lips day and night. I don't think Jesus was sitting there calculating the mathematical probabilities of whether or not someone could fulfill that prophecy. I think that He had learned to dwell in the Word of God rather than His own instinct 100% of the time, and this is what declares Him to be perfect. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever He does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Where have you heard something like this? Have you heard in Matthew 3 that John the Baptist speaks of Jesus and says His winnowing fork is in His hand to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat He will gather into the barn. The chaff will be blown into unquenchable fire. The way of the wicked is the passionate way. The way that is led by instincts in any breeze will blow it in any direction. The way of the righteous is laden with the glory, heaviness. Kavad means heaviness of God. You will always fall in every situation right where God wanted you to be. We are not led by our passions. We are not blown away when sifted. When sifted, we land every time rooted in the Word of God by the streams of life bearing fruit. So we are useful for the barn. The wicked are blown wherever their heart so desires. Have you ever heard, oh, well, so-and-so is just a free spirit? Really? That's usually a nice way to say they're a slave to their passions. I felt like doing this, so I ran and did that. Then I felt like doing this, so I ran and did that without regard to what God's Word said was appropriate for any and every situation. Not so the wicked, they're like chaff. That is no compliment. Neither is a baptism in fire. I know that it's common teaching that you get baptized in fire. You want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You do not want to be baptized in fire. So, but there was fire that came at Pentecost. There was fire that came at the temple. Fire is synonymous with His presence. Judgment and blessing are always with God. They come from the exact same source. What determines which you get is entirely up to you. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. They are the wind that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand... I am no Bible translator. But in English, when you say someone will not stand in this, to most of us, it means that they won't be there. That's not what this means. In Hebrew, this means they will not be able to endure it. They won't stand uprightly, planted by the streams of water. They will be mowed down in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There is an assembly of the righteous. And according to the context of this Scripture... They're above all else happy. (laughs) They're meditating on God's Word day and night, which means it is bubbling out of them everywhere they go, which is causing them to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. If you have another translation in here, it will say the Lord cherishes the way of the righteous. Still another word is the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Sometimes our language feels entirely inadequate when you study the original languages that it was written in. This means the Lord 
intimately examines the way of the righteous. And what is the way? The way is your actions that are based on your beliefs. The Lord intimately examines the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The very first psalm in the Bible is meant to lay out a thesis. It's meant to lay out a guide for living, for interpreting every other psalm. In fact, every other psalm at some point points to the idea that only God's Word is trustworthy. Only God's Word brings joy. Only God's Word will deliver you. All of it is encouragement that God's Word will sustain you in every situation. In the charismatic world, we're so excited to talk about the Spirit of God doing this, that, and the other. What did John record Jesus as saying? The Spirit will remind you of the words I have spoken. That's what's so empowering about it. Is you will not be overwhelmed by your instinct if you choose to yield to God's Spirit. He will bring the Word to you in a way that it can overpower your instinct so that you are free from bondage to sin. That's what the Bible is teaching you. Guys, we are like mighty trees planted by streams of water. It's our job to stretch out for it, to strive for it. And the drier the year, the further we have to stretch. But we will never fail to bear fruit in any situation if we will meditate on His Word day and night. I want to ask you to do something. i got maybe three, four more minutes. This week, I want you to consider what areas of your life you have excluded from the counsel of God. You've just decided, well, this is the way that I am. I don't have to be like so-and-so, which is an excuse for you to not apply the Word. I want you to examine those areas. Then, like Ezekiel speaking to dry bones, I want you to begin to search the Word. See if the Word encourages you to be reclusive or to reach out. I want you to see if the Word encourages you to be fearful or cheerful. I want you to examine those areas of your life and then let your roots stretch towards that water and see if you don't see tendons start to appear on the bones, followed by muscles and then flesh, and pretty soon, an army that God can use. I teach you these things on Wednesday nights because it's tools to fight back. It's a way to live. I'm trying to encourage them on Sunday not to entertain you, but so that what we will have here in a very short time is an unshakable army of God who no matter what is thrown at them, their confidence just grows. We're going to close here in just a second. I want to tell you that in Israel when they went to battle, the priest came right out and said, if you are scared, go home. We can't use you. God's army is still the same way today. If we are ruled by fears and insecurities rather than by the Word, if we are ruled by our base instincts rather than the Word, when battle comes, you divide the army of God. This is what was happening in the church that Jude is writing about. We need to be able to stay in the flow of the Spirit in every situation. This is what makes us useful to God. Now here's the other part of that. It comes through constant training in the Word. Not part-time, not sometimes, not Sundays and Wednesdays. Constant training in the Word. No vacations. 
24-7. Exodus 24-7 says we will do all that you obey. 24, day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Get the Word in you. Let it bubble out of you. Next time, not just you see your pastor, but you see your wife, your co-workers. Be speaking the Word. And let me free you from one more idea before we stand up and pray. To be speaking the Word does not mean that you have to quote chapter and verse. Jesus never quoted a chapter and verse. Paul never quoted a chapter and verse. No apostle ever quoted a chapter and verse. You might even say it's unscriptural to quote a chapter and a verse. They simply quoted the Word. We're not trying to impress people with our knowledge. We're trying to change ourselves so that it will change our circumstances. And you know what? You will see in months' time that we have fought through these things and our confidence in the Lord has grown. And we are like an adolescent who doesn't quite know how strong they are yet. The strength of a man, but still the timidity of a child. And God will train our hands for battle. This is what is happening in our church. I'm a pastor. My job is to have my finger on the pulse. And this is what I feel. The question is, will you be sent home on the day of battle or will you be able to participate? Stand up. Let's pray.